Hey guys, this is Pastor Mark Warren from Church at the Crossroads. Thank you for checking out our podcast. My prayer is that you're encouraged and challenged as you hear, understand, and obey God's Word today. Well, praise the Lord this morning. The captain of our ship is elsewhere. He is elsewhere preaching and bringing the word of God to another body of believers. How many of you know that's a good thing? And so I have been privileged with the task of bringing the word to our church family this morning. And so the title of my message today is Built for These Days. Now, I have a friend named Wilbert Addison, and him and his wife work for American Family Radio. He put this on his Facebook page this month, and I thought it was just so appropriate because it was several days after the election. You know, your social media is just full of just passionate pleas and cries for the church that feels like persecution is coming and because things are not going the way they thought it would go. And so he said, exciting times to be a Christian. We were built for these days, and I thought it was such a powerful statement. And I started thinking, I said, what is it about the church? Who are we and what makes God's people so resilient in times of great suffering and uncertainty? What is it about the people of God that when you look at extra biblical writings, the people who hated Christians, what they would have to say is, we can't keep them down. We have persecuted them. We have killed them. We have taken their mothers and their children. We have taken their men. We have taken their preachers, and we can't keep them down. What is it about the church of the living God, Jesus Christ, that explodes in the face of persecution? And are we that church? What are the walls that are holding up the hope of the church? And are our walls sturdy and firm? And that's the question that I have. That's the question that I believe the Lord is bringing to us today in Acts chapter 4. And so the first person I thought of when I thought about resilience was um, Elizabeth Elliot. And I'm sure many of you know Elizabeth Elliot. She was a Christian author and speaker. Her first husband, Jim Elliot, was killed in 1956 while attempting to make missionary contact with the Alca of eastern Ecuador. But what makes her so incredible is that she later spent two years as a missionary to the tribe members who killed her husband. And these were her words. Our vision is so limited. We can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of a different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. The cross was the proof of his love that he gave that son, that he let him go to Calvary's cross. Though legions of angels might have rescued him, he will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by the fire will have to go into the process. And a lot of us in our own lives, we've seen that hammering, that chiseling. A lot of us have seen that suffering and that turmoil. And it is the, our very own Apostle Paul who says, Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys I faced dangers from the rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, 
dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all of the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. He says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me, so I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Folks, sometimes we just need to live in the scriptures to feel a little bit better about the struggles that we face. So what is it about these believers and many more that came before and after them that provide them with so much confidence in the face of deep persecution and loss? How is it that they are so deeply confident in the cause of Christ that suffering was welcome if for the advancement of the gospel? And is our church resembling that today? Are we the kind of people that in the face of persecution, political persecution, religious persecution as the first century church faced, are we the kind of people that can go the distance? And not only go the distance, but explode with new believers. Are we those people? So before we delve into this morning's text, I want to give you a few facts about the book that we're going to be reading the text today is going to be from the book of Acts. The book of Acts is unique in that its geographical and historical accuracy has been tested and brought skeptics to faith. William Ramsey was a historian, an archaeologist, and a skeptic. A skeptic is someone who just really kind of doesn't really believe in God. In the late 1800s, and he began a study of Luke's accounts in the book of Acts believing, as his professors had taught him, as he believed in his academic profession, that they would not be accurate. And so Acts was not considered credible as a historical reference by scholars of history, and he believed that he would uncover errors in Luke's writings concerning the geography and the topography of Asia Minor. Now, this is not, he is not to be mistaken by Sir William Ramsey, the chemist. That was a different Sir William Ramsey. After 25 years of studying and comparing Luke's writings in Acts with the geography of the land, Sir William Ramsey shocked the intellectual world when he became a believer and said this about the author of the book of Acts. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And it is in this confidence that we actually do possess in your hands the inspired word of God that we read the book of Acts. And we find how the first century church is a model for us today of gospel advancement in the midst of great persecution. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. We're humbled. Father, may you just humble us when we approach your word, because these are the words of the living God. Father, prepare our hearts as we read to understand the messages that you have for your people today, that we would be humbled, that we would be, Father, convicted, 
and that you would stir within us a passion for your word and for your people and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so as my, one of my professors used to like to say, tap or turn to Acts chapter 4, because these are the days of technology, right? And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. And there's something in this text that sometimes not very quickly apparent. But when you look at the part that it says that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, they were greatly annoyed. Why were they so annoyed? Well, see, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. But that's not why they were annoyed. This was a much deeper statement that was made. This was a much deeper statement that Paul and the disciples were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus out from among the dead. This was extremely significant because the wording here in the Greek is such that it is specific to the actual resurrection of Jesus of the person of Jesus out from among the dead. They were teaching that a new time in the history of Israel had come and that this new time had dawned for the world. And through the resurrection of Jesus, there was forgiveness for Israel at last. This is huge. This was huge. They were proclaiming that all of the hopes and the beliefs of Israel up until this point had been delivered and found and realized in Christ the true king of the Jews. This was a new covenant under Christ. They were preaching that through the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, his followers now had a new identity. This was huge because this was centuries and centuries of Jewish identity. They now were identifying themselves as Christians, a people that were so deeply committed to who they were as Jews. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. This was the message that they were receiving. They had a new identity, and that is significant in these times of racial division. Someone on Facebook, and I can't remember his name, I think it was Samuel Say or something like that, he said, white Christians, because you hear that a lot, right? I mean, in these times, in this cultural moment, in this cultural sort of atmosphere, a lot of things is about white people doing this and white people doing that, right? Well, he made it clear. He said, white Christians, God is not calling you to live a life of solidarity with black people, with black Christians. God is calling you to live a life of solidarity with Christ alongside those of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every language and every shade and every color and, and, and a life of solidarity with Christ. We are one under Christ. And they understood, although sometimes they would stumble, right? Although sometimes they would be like, the Gentiles, uh-uh, I ain't going over there. They realized that they were one in Christ and that they had a new identity. This is vital to the church. 
This was vital to their identity as a people who would suffer persecution and loss. They understood that they had a new identity. Acts 4, 5 through 12. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me break that down for you a little bit, because that's pretty significant, <laughs> okay? The Holy Spirit was the third person of the Trinity that was promised by Christ, received at Pentecost in chapter 2. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we experience the power of the presence of God. And let's not be confused on who the Holy Spirit is. Because I heard one lady from a huge church, really international church, and she stood on the stage and they're really big on music and she sat there with her little microphone on her couch and she said, I see the Holy Spirit as a genie in a bottle. Let me tell you something. You don't know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a genie in a bottle. The Holy Spirit is not at our beck and call. The Holy Spirit is God, sovereign, eternal, holy, and completely in authority and in control. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we can be effective as a church. John 16, 14 says, He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Firstly, the Holy Spirit will glorify Christ in the life of the believer. He will teach. He will speak. He will intercede. And he grieves when we sin. He is a person. He's not a ghost. He's not a power. He's not a force. He's not a presence. He is a person. He is the ultimate gift to the believer. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is dead. There is no church. Acts 4, 13 through 22. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or, te or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of the gods to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. For we cannot 
but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They had been with Jesus. Their deeds and everything that they did demonstrated that they had been with Jesus. And what does that look like to us? Because for them, it was walking and talking with the king of the Jews who had walked the earth during that time. At this point, Jesus is risen. So what does that look like for the believer who desires to make an impact on the world through the church? Well, John 14, 21 tells us, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you love Christ? Do you keep his commandments? Because there's this idea that it, it's only just about the love of God that really we need to focus on. It's about the sovereignty of God. It's about the justice of God. How about the fact that these people would have lived holy lives when they went home? Holy lives when they were tent making. Holy lives when they had relationships with other people. Holiness. Holiness is a result of a life that loves Christ. How do we show that we've been with him today? Does your life reflect that you've been with Jesus? Does your family reflect that you've been with Jesus? Does your social media, relationships, and entertainment choices, what you watch and what you listen to reflect that you've been with Jesus? Do your children believe you when you say you've been with Jesus? Do your friends believe you when you say you've been with Jesus? The other portion of this verse, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. Their deeds were not found in opposition to the gospel. They might have been mad at them for what they were doing because they, were, they felt threatened, right? But what they were doing was not in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone said, and I can't remember the name of this quote. If anybody wants to know, I will look it up and give it to you. He said, what does it look like for someone to have been with Jesus? He says he has clean hands of unreproachable integrity. He has steady feet that walk in obedience. He has dirty knees from time spent in believing prayer. He has weary eyes from diligent study. He has a renewed mind of biblical conviction. He has a broken heart for lost people. He has a listening ear for spiritual direction. He has strong arms from bearing one another's burdens. He has a faithful tongue that speaks the truth in love. He has legs that stand firm in spiritual boldness. That's what it looks like. For someone who's been with Jesus. I thought that was pretty cool. May that be the, the prayer of every believer. Verses 23 to 31, as we continue in Acts chapter 4, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea, and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to their servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the Holy Servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What do you think my next point is going to be? You might think it's boldness. But that's really just sort of a consequence of the fact that they understood the sovereignty of God. They understood that God is in control. They understood that he has authority over all of creation. And this understanding of the sovereignty and the control of God comes from the Old Testament because the Old Testament would have been their scriptures. They would have had the scrolls of Genesis, of Exodus, of Leviticus, of Numbers, of Isaiah. They would have been looking and reading through this, understanding the sovereignty and the control of God. Their starting point would have been Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This was their context of who was in control. We've lost that today. The idea that somehow we get to invite God into our world, but we don't live in his world is not biblical. And so their starting point would have been Genesis 1-1. They would have understood that not only did he create the world, but then he formed it, and then he filled it, and then he created man in his image. That would have been their starting point. So Abraham Kuyper said, can we imagine that God would rule the world in one way at creation? and now rule the world in a different way in Christ. We don't control the world. We don't control creation. It's heresy. It's heresy. Name it and claim it as heresy. The people of God, God's will. I mean, come on. Is God's will not greater than the will of those who were created? and are fallible, and mess up, and stumble, and have hate in their hearts for their fellow man. God's will is greater. They prayed for his will to be done, and they were confident that no matter what it cost them, his sovereignty and his love are inextricably part of his nature. So it is in this understanding that God is sovereign, that he is in control, and that he has all authority that they could pray for boldness. It was in this understanding that they could say, my God, do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. How many of us heard this on Facebook during the election? Not enough? God, whatever it is that you have predestined, whatever it is that you have planned, may it be so. Because he knows better. Because why? Because he created the heavens and the earth. Because he is in control. Because he is sovereign. Because he is love. And this is the context in which they could pray for boldness. You can't pray for boldness to someone that you don't believe is in control. You can pray yourself. You can pray the God that you've created with your own hands, as young lady did when she said that the Holy Spirit is like a genie in a bottle. Good luck with that. There's no power there. That's a God of her own making. 
Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had any need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement and Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Lastly, they remained in unity. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Unity can be a very difficult thing, but the disciples were very clear in their unity was important because it was this unity that allowed God to work. It was this unity that allowed the Holy Spirit to flow. It was this unity that allowed God to add to their numbers. And it was this unity that allowed them to support the apostles as they went out and they shared the gospel. And they met one another's needs. Now, don't, let's not be, you know, confuse this with socialism. This isn't socialism. <laughs> A lot of people will use this verse to support socialism. But one big difference is free will here. It's the power of free will that is who God is. It's the power of free will. These people came and they gave because they loved God and they loved his gospel and they wanted his gospel to go forth. And they would do anything, they would give anything, they would be anything to see that happen because it was the truth. Because it is what they saw with their eyes, it is what they felt with their hands, it was the truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the truth. And so they had a new identity. Does your identity as a disciple of Christ take precedence? Because in times today when you're a person of color, people want you to lead with the idea that you're a person of color. I'm not a person of color first, I'm a disciple of Christ first. And it is with that that I will lead. You're not a white Christian, you're a Christian and it is this new identity that we must go forth and do everything that we do to show people that we have this new identity. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Be sealed with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can only indwell a life that is fully surrendered to him. So if you're here today and you still have not made that decision, our prayer today is that you will make that decision to surrender your life because the sweetness of the Holy Spirit like none other. They had been with Jesus. Are you spending time in prayer in his word? Do you make that priority in your life, in the life of your family, to spend time with him, to spend time with his people, to spend time in his word? They understood the sovereignty of God. Do you pray for your will or for his? Do you dig your feet in because you think you know better? Or do you understand that God's will whether it's a president that supports abortion or a president that doesn't. We don't know what God is doing. He knows the future. We want his will to be done. They were committed to unity. Are you committed to the unity of the body of Christ? Or are you a stumbling block in the body of Christ? Are we fostering unity within each other? Are we forgiving one another? Are we apologizing when we're wrong? Because we will stumble. We will do things that 
get on each other's nerves. But is he worthy? Is he worthy? J.I. Packer said, whatever cultural shifts take place around us, whatever socio-political concerns claim our attention, Jesus Christ crucified, what's up, please? risen and reigning remains the heart of the Christian message. Other things may change, this does not. Church, if we are to overcome the raging waters of our culture, that want to silence this message, the painful persecution of our government, the world's wooing ways that are vying for our allegiance, these are non-negotiable. We must have a new identity. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We must spend time with Jesus. We must understand that he is in control and that he is sovereign, and we must be committed to unity. Christ is worthy. He is king and he is good and he is loving. And no matter what you're going through today, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what it is that you have to lay at the altar, at the feet of Christ, I promise you, it will be worth it. I promise you it's worth it. Christ, be magnified. Christ, let that, let that be the cry of every believer here today. Christ and Christ alone be magnified. given to us in your promises, Lord. Father, may we desire to love you as you are, not as what we want you to be. Father, give us the passion to be bold, Lord God. Give us a desire for a new identity, Lord God, and to walk in that identity. Father, help us to desire to be with Jesus. Lord, we are so grateful and so honored for you that you just even want to be with us, Lord. It's that simple, that you would want to be part of our lives, Lord. Father, help us to daily surrender our lives and our wills to you so that we could be an effective church usher in your kingdom in your name we pray amen amen thanks for joining us today visit us at crossroadsahoski.com for more information additional resources in service times.